Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf, the host of Deep State Radio. Happy New Year. Welcome back to another uh, exciting year of Deep State Radio. Uh, As you can see from the headlines, Uh, The year has already gotten off to a tumultuous start, and this first episode of uh, the year uh, certainly reflects that, and I think is a really, really great episode on on a whole set of essential issues associated with the killing of Iranian General uh, Soleimani. Now, when we recorded this episode, uh, which was on Monday afternoon on January 6th, there was a story that the United States Army uh, or the United States military had announced that it was going to depart Iraq. And it was a story that had uh, been confirmed by AFP, by Reuters, by the Washington Post. And so we talked about it a little bit. And then shortly after we finished the episode, the Secretary of Defense uh, had a little meeting with the press and he said, oh, there's been no decision made to pull out of Iraq. And Uh, The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, uh, yeah, that was a draft uh, letter and it wasn't approved and the language wasn't any good. Uh, And so uh, what seemed to be a fairly momentous decision uh, seemed to be undone. Of course, none of what they said addressed the fact that the Iranian parliament had uh, earlier voted to expel U.S. troops from Iraq. And of course, this raises question about whether the United States is willing to stay in that country uh, without their permission. Um, And so this issue is unresolved. We thought about it and we thought better to just run the episode as we recorded it, which contains a lot of discussion about a whole host of other things. Uh, And then when you get to the parts that talk a little bit about this pullout from Iraq, you've got to listen to it with the qualifying news that's Uh, come uh, in the interim, which I've just tried to relate, although who knows what's going to happen subsequent to this, uh, and think about it in the context of what might happen uh, if the U.S. pulls out or what might happen if the U.S. doesn't pull out, or indeed what might happen if U.S. influence in the region declines for other reasons. We think it's a great episode. It's got Corey Shockey, Rosa Brooks, Joe Cerincioni, covers a whole host of issues you won't have heard about elsewhere, won't get discussed anywhere else. And that's why I encourage you to listen to it from beginning to end. And of course, to listen to us uh, every week. So enjoy this first episode of the new year. Sorry about any confusion, which may have come as a result of bad coordination, uh, believe it or not, within the United States Department of Defense. Um, And we'll continue to keep you updated with subsequent issues including the next one, which you'll have um, on Thursday afternoon. 
Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again throughout the year. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and as I say this, I'm looking out at the beautiful Los Angeles skyline with kind of bluish skies over the city, grayish, bluish. But um, And I am uh, happy to join you in the new year with Corey Shockey, newly relocated to Washington, D.C. Am I correct? <laughs> you are correct. I am looking out the window of my house right now and joyful to be back here. Yes. Well, perhaps you're not paying attention, but we'll get to that. Uh, um, uh, also, also in Washington, D.C. today, we've got, um, as you could hear there for a moment, Joe Serencioni of Plowshares Fund. Hi, Joe. Hi, David, and welcome, Corey. Welcome back. Thank you, my friend. I look forward to watching baseball with you this season. No, I, I can't wait. And also Rosa Brooks, who probably won't watch baseball with you who I think is probably also in Washington. Are you correct? I would Am watch I baseball with Joe and yes. Corey and you. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Nobody, nobody has invited me. Nobody we has have invited to have... me to watch baseball. I've been waiting for the invitation. Okay, uh, you know, here think, it is. We've got it. I All think right. that's a really good idea, and I will, I will propose that we do an episode of Deep State Radio from Nationals Park. From <laughs> 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 Where we talk, you know, the nice thing about baseball is we can have a nice conversation about the world. And then every once in a while, Joe will go, oh, foul out. And then, you know, whatever. The world champion, the world champion, Washington Nationals. Um, so uh, we went away for the holidays and everything was going along pretty calmly there for a while. Um, and then not so much. Uh, and so I think the place to begin, since everybody else's podcast and TV show has hot takes on uh, Soleimani uh, and the attack and uh, uh, the death of Soleimani and the aftershocks, is that we, because we're deep state rated, we should have cool takes. You know, we, we have a little bit of distance. We have a little bit of perspective. Uh, and let me just go around and start with sort of the cool takes. And by that, I also mean, what are you, what, what, what should people be focusing on with regard to this story that they're not focusing on? And let me start with the uh, newly uh, returned to Washingtonian Corey Shockey. Uh, I think people are overreacting to the Iranian parliament's passage of a non-binding referendum saying that all foreign forces should be out of Iraq. What people are not focusing on is that they said all foreign forces, not U.S. forces. And it's remarkable that having violated the terms of our, uh, our stationing of troops inside Iraq, that Iraqis are still cool-headed enough to be suggesting that they don't want to be a battleground for any foreign forces, Iranian or U.S., rather than just blaming us for what's going on. Uh, that's a remarkable level of allied maturity that we should be damn grateful for, and people are overlooking. Well, that is uh, you know, appropriate coming from Corey, but that's the first silver lining I've heard from this. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, but I, I, I bet I can get another one if I go to Joe and say, 
Iran pulled out of the nuclear agreement, didn't they, Joe? And then you say, <laughs> then I will say, no, they did not. They did not pull out of the nuclear agreement the way the United States did, which was we're leaving. We don't want anything to do with this. We're putting all our sanctions back. We're reneging on all the promises we made. What Iran says, and there's, there's some slight justification of this, is that the agreement allows them to um, exempt themselves from the certain limitations if another party to the agreement has also done that. So they just made their fifth announcement yesterday of, of limitations that they feel they would no longer be bound by. Now, th this is the most serious limitations that they're exempting themselves from. They say there's no longer any limitations on the number of centrifuges they can install. Remember, they pulled out two-thirds of their centrifuges and got rid of all their stockpile of uranium gas under the deal. Um, and so they're now saying, no, we can have as much gas and storage as we want. We can put as many centrifuges in as we want. They'd already started work on installing uh, advanced centrifuges, many times more capable than the ones they have. So the deal uh, limitations have been breached. It's quite significant, but the deal is not all dead. And as Miracle Max told us in The Princess Bride, there's a big difference between <laughs> being all dead and mostly dead. You know, He's been dead, mostly dead all day. <laughs> mostly dead is still slightly alive. And so the, the deal is slightly alive. So what does that mean? That means Iran is saying if um, they get sanctions relief, if they get some of the part of the deal they were promised, then they're willing to go back into compliance. It also means that should this deal survive for another year, a new U.S. president would have that framework to rejoin and to build upon. Um, it, it won't be completely gone. Um, well, this is just way too much optimism. Who could I possibly turn to <laughs> Saturday? <laughs> um. Hey, who? <laughs> <laughs> who? Um, who? Who? But but Rosa well, war, cr war crimes Brooks. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. So let's start with the glass half full. Um, the glass half full is uh, notwithstanding the memes that seem to be circulating amongst young people. I don't think we're going to have World War Three. Um, it's it's it is interesting. My my children who are not famous for the uh, attention with which they follow global news, um, both expressed some concern to me about whether there's going to be a draft and whether World War III is starting. And I felt pretty confident that I could say no to both of those questions. Um, I think the uh, Iranians are too smart to want to get into a large-scale conventional armed conflict with the United States. Uh, and I think Trump is too much of a chicken hawk to want to get into a large scale uh, uh, conflict with the Iranians. And both of those in this particular context are probably really good things. Um, so I think both sides, despite bellicose rhetoric, are going to uh, stay away from the brink um, in all likelihood. And I, 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 I do think we will see a surge in Iranian-sponsored terrorist attacks, in Iranian-sponsored uh, disruptions of all forms, not just uh, using using physical force, but also cyber attacks and, and other forms of mischief and disruption, which is obviously not good, but it it does beat World War III. So that's, that's, that's the glass half full version. Um, the glass half empty version of this is, yeah, it's still scary and it's dangerous and as usual, 
Trump did something without really thinking it through and clearly against the advice of, of many of his own advisors. Uh, and we're now in a situation where, you know, notwithstanding everything I just said, the risk of escalation is, is substantial, um, not to mention uh, the impact on uh, the nuclear agreement, et cetera. Um, uh, and I, I'm also, um, you know, I am very, <laughs> I am troubled. I am dismayed by the <laughs> specifics of the president's recent rhetoric. Um, he has uh, suggested in recent tweets um, that he is at least considering a number of acts that, if done as he is suggesting, would constitute potentially war crimes, um, ranging from uh, asserting that he is we are targeting 52 Iranian cultural sites, not because there's a mil military reason to target them, but because there were 52 American hostages taken, um, which uh, is kind of a no-no under the international law of armed conflict as well as under U.S. law. Um, and he cheerfully suggested that he would consider uh, disproportionate uh, attacks on Iran, which is a really big no-no. The sort of bedrock principles of the law of war are that uh, military force um, um, needs to comport with the principles of, of necessity, humanity, and proportionality. Um, so when you just come out and say, hey, we think we might launch a disproportionate attack on you, that's, that's a really big no-no. Um, the other depressing thing is the very large number of Americans, including in the media, who seem to be completely blissfully unaware of this or, and or don't care. Um, and the only silver lining on that one is that, uh, as is generally the case with Trump's uh, crazy tweets, usually nothing comes of them. And I hope that that will be the case this time as well. Um, well, usually nothing comes of them. Of course, this has come of Trump craziness. Um, but let's, let's, let's try to keep our, our focus on the positive, uh, consequences of this for a second, um, or things that might look that way. How about this, uh, Corey, um, earlier, uh, today, the Iraqi prime minister, uh, received China's ambassador to Iraq, uh, and the Chinese conveyed Beijing's readiness to provide military assistance. Um, now that was nice of them. Um, <laughs> you, your, your earlier comment notwithstanding. Um, and so here's some good news. Um, Trump doesn't seem really that inclined to stick around to most of these places. We'll be out of Afghanistan more or less by the end of the year. We may get kicked out of Iraq. The Chinese want in. As far as I can tell during, you know, since the 1950s, we've done a pretty lousy job in the Middle East anyway. We talk about influence in the Middle East, but they have more influence here than we there. Um, maybe handing it off to the Chinese is a good thing. You know, hey, you take it from here, folks. You're using fossil fuels. We got plenty. Yeah, it's tempting. <laughs> um, I've always had that temptation with the uh, dispute between Palestinians and Israelis to hand it off to Europeans for 50 or 70 years, and then they can give it back to us. Um, I'm not in favor of handing the Middle East writ large over to China or anybody else for three reasons. First, because that gives no agency to the people of the region who are actually yearning for and working for a very different and better Middle East. 
um, you know, the, the protests that we've seen in Lebanon and in Iraq are protests in favor of less corruption, better representation, and a less sectarian model of governance. And those are all things we should want too, but they certainly want and are working for those things for themselves. So uh, one opportunity we are missing in how the Trump administration is handling the aftermath of the Soleimani kill in Iraq is to encourage to work in with the grain of the Iraqi parliament saying that they want less international interference and help them be capable of handling their security challenges without international interference, because that would actually be a great outcome for Iraqis and for us, and consistent with President Trump's desire to write off the Middle East. Mm. A second reason I'm not in favor of handing the Middle East over to China is that I'm profoundly skeptical that the Chinese have the best interests of the people in the region in mind, and they are likelier to replicate 19th century or pre-World War II, 20th century uh, Western foreign policy in the region. And that that is um, not good for the people of the region and is likely to draw the United States into having to care about the outcomes, thereby uh, increasing the likelihood of confrontation between a rising China that is increasingly militaristic and a United States that still deep down, I believe, cares about the rules of a liberal international order that we created with our friends in the aftermath of World War II. And the third reason I'm not in favor of China uh, taking over the Middle East is that the one advantage, one of the advantages the United States has in managing a rising militaristic China is that the modern Chinese military has almost no operational experience. Uh, and if we should be called on to fight a war against the Chinese, I would like them to have very little operational experience because it's a big advantage that the American military and our allied militaries have been fighting for the last 20 years. It gives us a lot better, more capable, more resilient, and more creative militaries than the ones we are likely to fight. Um, okay, well then let's shift um, uh, our search for other sort of positives from all of this um, and acknowledging all the negatives. Uh, to you, Joe, um, one of the things is that, you know, as we look at the attack on Soleimani, one of the reasons people haven't done this in the past is that they recognize there are a lot of potential unintended consequences. What will the retaliation of the Iranians be? How will they use their overseas proxies, whether it's Hezbollah, other terrorist groups, sleeper cells around the world? Uh, how will they respond against other U.S. allies? Uh, how might this affect global oil markets if they take a step in the Persian Gulf um, and so forth? Uh, and in fact, you know, one of the problems has been is that we've seen Iran as a kind of demented theocratic state um, uh, led by a small group of, of, of mullahs um, who have very extremist views. Um, but as it turns out, the, the sort of semi-autocratic 
actor here who doesn't take advice, doesn't listen to anybody, uh, and is acting in an irrational way is the president of the United States. Um, and the Iranians, after all, are the ones that entered into the JCPOA uh, uh, at the uh, end of the Obama years. Uh, they actually have relationships with their adversaries in the region and work mm -hmm. to avoid uh, uh, conflict in that regard. Um, and so while the Iranians have some obligation to respond to this, it seems to me that they are a more rational actor in this case than perhaps we are. I, I think that's true. I think the Iranians play the long game. You know, they claim to have invented chess. So unlike the president of the United States, they, they think two or three moves ahead. They consider second and third order consequences. And, and although it's absolutely true that the United States enjoys an overwhelming military advantage over Iran, Iran actually enjoys the regional advantage for some of the reasons that you just pointed out. And you could look at this and say, well, this is the, the killing of Qasem Soleimani has already backfired on the United States. The, the Iraqi government is moving to expel U.S. troops from Iraq, a long-sought Iranian objective. I frankly don't see how that's going to be avoided. I think U.S. troops will have to leave Iraq. Um, the, uh, just a few weeks ago, there were very large demonstrations in Iran and in Iraq against the Iranian government, in Iraq against the influence of the Iran's Iranians in Iraq. Those have now ended. And in Iran against the policies of the government itself, including the Revolutionary Guard, you saw the demonstrations on Monday and, and, and on Sunday, massive, massive. Any government can manipulate a small show of support. Think the Trump inauguration. But you cannot manipulate this. Millions of people in the street united around the government's position, united in defense of their country. And everything that Trump has done since that moment has just intensified this support, including threatening thousands-year-old cultural sites in, in Iran. The general who succeeded Soleimani, General Ismail Ghani, has already threatened uh, to retaliate. And this is this idea that somehow this one man, Soleimani, as brilliant as he might have been, as ruthless as he might have been, is somehow uh, irreplaceable is just not true. The Revolutionary Guard is a very large organization with very large global cap capabilities, and they have already mobilized their proxy forces. So their choice of targets is very large, very large. You know, you could see fire bombings of Kentucky Fried Chickens in Vietnam, for example, just to give you an example. Um, they also have substantial cyber warfare capabilities. Remember, in, it was revealed in 2016 that the Iranians had penetrated a small dam in New York in 2013. They actually took control of the dam. They didn't do anything at the time, but they could have. So there's, you don't know where we're going to be hit. So that's the source of some of the, uh, the fear that uh, Rosa d d talked about before, and I'm seeing this too, particularly among young people. They're afraid because there are so many ways Iran could hit back at us. And unfortunately, just to close here, I don't really share, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying these words, Rosa's optimism. Uh, I think we're heading for war. I think we're heading for what could be a catastrophic war, because once we start, I don't see an easy way to, to de-escalate it. I don't see an off-ramp 
on this road. I think the Iranians would be smart not to retaliate, but it's impossible for them not to retaliate at this point. They're going to have to do it. Um, which it might not be tomorrow or even this week. Revenge is a dish best served cold, and it might take some time, but they will hit back. Um, yes, and I mean, it, that could take a variety of, of forms, and people have speculated on that. Um, but we're already seeing some consequences of this. Um, and the Iraqi uh, parliament's vote to expel U.S. troops is one of them. Uh, now, Corey mentioned one dimension of it, but even as we are here having this conversation on a Monday afternoon, Rosa, uh, a letter has been provided to the uh, Iraqi government from the United States Army saying, sir, in due deference to the sovereignty of the Republic of Iraq and as requested by the Iraqi parliament and prime minister, uh, we will be repositioning our forces over the course of the coming days and weeks to prepare for onward movement, uh, and it goes on and on. But essentially, the U.S. Army has just sent a letter to the Iraqi government saying we're getting out. So what do you think of that as a consequence? Well, you know, I have mixed feelings. Um, I, I think uh, on the one hand, um, you know, we we shouldn't have gotten in, et cetera. Um, and our presence there causes all kinds of problems. On the other hand, I think one of the painful lessons of the Obama administration's decision to withdraw troops from Iraq uh, was that, you know, once you're in, you're kind of stuck. And if you get out in a careless, thoughtless, uh, overly rapid way, you potentially create a bigger problem than the problems that you're causing by being there in the first place. And, and, you know, I think, I think that everyone presumably shares the goal long-term of getting U.S. troops out of Iraq. I also think that given the chaos that President Trump has, if not caused, certainly accelerated in the region, not, not just as a result of this most recent action, but also as a result of his uh, uh, actions in Syria, for instance. Um, given, given that chaos, that a withdrawal that is poorly thought through will have the same or worse consequences as the last withdrawal that was poorly thought through, which is to say, probably not good ones. Yeah, well, you may argue with me, some of you want to may argue with me, but it seems to me that the, 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 the action that has just taken place, which is the Iraqis said, get out. We said, the president said, I'll sanction you. But then, you know, a few hours later, sent a letter saying we're getting out. And by the way, in the midst of all of this, I, I throw in just to, you know, add a, a factoid in the middle of this thing that the chief of staff to the secretary of defense resigned this morning in the midst of all of this. <laughs> yeah, just um, the latest one to leave has been a really... And a, a, what do we know about this, by the way? Do we do we have any more details on, on this? I haven't seen any more details. It just seems like, given that we're at a moment of national crisis, or, or certainly a, a challenging moment for the country, uh, and in particular for the military with all this going on, uh, and that there are a host of stories suggesting that the military was not pleased with the option taken, uh, that 
you know, the, it's it's certainly curious uh, development. But so, can know, I stamp my civil military foot about this? I, w- I was uh, counting on your civil military foot, although I <laughs> I thought, frankly, both your feet were civil military feet. But <laughs> thank you for that. Um, you know, uh, the Pentagon doesn't get to decide what gets done. And I think we shouldn't actually care that much about what the military thinks about the option chosen, because that's a way of trying to delegitimize the elected civilian leadership's choice. Uh, And it's also unseemly virtue signaling on the part of the subordinate, rightly subordinate, a uniformed and professional American military to suggest that they don't like the president's choice because their expertise is narrow and deeply skilled, but it's not the same thing as having to aggregate America's preferences to determine what the right amount of blood and treasure to put towards any challenge that our country faces. And I really wish um, that, A, they would be professional enough to keep their judgments to themselves, and B, much more importantly, we would stop giving so much credit to what the uniformed military thinks, because that is actually politicizing the military, to use them as a tool in our civilian policy disputes about what the right way is to protect the country. so uh, I would. I, urge I, I, I just, I just, on behalf of you, I want to uh, interject and say you're not by this suggesting that somehow the president um, possesses greater knowledge than they do, but that our system allows for that possibility. Exactly right. If you don't want presidents to make reckless foreign policy choices, don't elect reckless presidents. But it's actually dangerous in the long term and bad for the relationship between our military and our broader civilian society to set them up as the ultimate arbiters of how military force should be used and when military force should be used, because they don't get to make that judgment. And there are very good reasons they don't get to make that judgment, which is they're not accountable to the American public for the whole swath of trade-offs that have to be made when military force gets selected. But, but Corey, surely it's relevant that the Joint Chiefs thought it was a terrible idea to designate the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, for example. Surely it's relevant that they thought it would be a terrible idea to assassinate Soleimani. I mean, are you saying we shouldn't It's not that? nearly as relevant as you're making it sound, Joe, because, uh, you know, uh, they probably also think that uh, integrating openly homosexual or transsexual people into the military is a bad idea. We don't care what they think about that um, because we think we have a broader social interest in that happening and we're willing to accept any potential degradation of unit cohesion or whatever other basis the military argued against, many in the military argued against it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not saying, I am not saying that their views are irrelevant. I'm saying that 
we shouldn't set them above the elected political leadership who makes judgments based on broader social desires and needs of our country. And so, yeah, it's relevant. They thought this was a bad idea, but they're not the only people or even the most important people who get to make a judgment on that. And my worry is that we as a civil military, in our civil military discourse are trending towards using the military as a cudgel against political decisions we don't like. And that's bad for the legitimacy of our military and its relationship to the broader society. Well, I agree we have civilian control of the military. I would just like to also have the public aware of what the military is saying as we consider these profound issues of war and peace. You know, I really like Rick Shinseki, the former chief of staff of the Army's view on this. When he did not make public uh, uh, until Congress forced him in an open hearing, because our civilian leadership isn't just the president of the United States, it's also the Congress. Um, and uh, Rick Shinseki believed that the president has a right to private counsel from the military, that you get better decisions that way. And I think that also needs to be weighed into the calculus, Joe, that the president's got a right to be wrong. He's got a right to private counsel. If we don't allow any private counsel, um, then we're likely, in my judgment, to get worse presidential decisions. I think, you can know, I, the, can the, I jump the, in on this? Yes, go of ahead. Of course, you're. Well, uh, only to say that, that I, on the, uh, well, <laughs> only to say that it's complicated, uh, only to make a completely um, wishy washy statement. Um, so I, I agree with Corey. Um, the, the military's views on this or any other matter are relevant, but not necessarily dispositive. And we should always keep in mind that, uh, you know, military, senior military leaders can be dead wrong just as easily as senior civilian leaders can be dead wrong, as well as the fact that in our system, ultimately, it's the civilians who, who make the calls, not the military. That being said, I think, I think that this, this is another situation and the, the Trump administration has presented many of these situations where the, the sort of standard institutional answer, answer which is right 99% of the time, uh, is, is not always clearly right because the, the, the Trump administration has violated so many institutional norms as well as so many substantive norms that I, I do think we're in a little bit of a, of a unique situation here. I also think that that, that being said, um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, th I think that the Trump administration has created an unusual array of situations where the military has been uh, asked, um, at least implicitly, to do various things that are arguably unlawful, um, not to mention strategically foolish, et cetera. And I think that puts people in the military in a really difficult situation because norms of civilian control start start clashing with norms of constitutional fidelity and norms of citizenship and so forth. Um, I, I'm less certain that in these relatively unique situations that there is a clear answer, 
although I think that I would tend to come down on the side of, hey, if you're in the military and you strongly disagree with what the president is doing or saying, uh, your duty is not to leak that information. Your duty is to you know, say so and resign or resign and say so. Um, that said, that's probably too much to expect of most human beings. And so far, that has been the, the pattern. Um, so I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the, the difficult situation in which military leaders find themselves in this very unique Trumpian moment. There's a larger issue here, which is the way the Trump administration is using the military and the intelligence agencies. And they're in the situation where when they um, agree with them, they bring them forward, and when they disagree with them, they push them aside and don't want anybody to talk about it. So, for example, the, the a big part of Trump's justification for what he did in the strike on Soleimani relies on the assertion that it was self-defense, that they had intelligence that an attack was imminent. And yet they have not presented any of that intelligence. We we need to know that. This is the exact situation we were in in the prelude to the Iraq war, where there was intelligence that was cherry-picked. As you know, you can find intelligence in just about anything on any issue. The issue is whether the intelligence agencies assess this to be credible to be, and reliable intelligence. So we need to know this. So that means we have to go beyond what the civilian leadership is telling us and go into the intelligence agencies, including the military, and say, well, what did? You, how did you assess this? How did you assess the risk? We need to know that that's not a civilian military issue. That's just a question of the, the truth of the situation and whether we're once again being tricked into a war of choice. So, Corey, I want to give you the last word on this particular point of the discussion, simply because I think you were making a, a, a point, which is this is how the system is supposed to work. And we need, if we want it to work this way, then we need to, uh, you know, treat it this way, you know, treat it appropriately, even when the president isn't the president you want. Um, but having said that, I think the other points carry some weight, and that is that this president doesn't listen, isn't fit, um, and the advice he may have been getting uh, from people on the military side may actually have been better advice than he was taking, um, and that that... Okay, but that's but, not the first president this is true of. No, and no, I, I understand. I, I just want to give, you know, I mean, I see both sides of this, and I just wanted to give you mm -hmm. a chance to yeah. frame a response. Sure. Two quick things. He wanted the to first, join in with wishy-washiness. Yeah. Someone has got to take the side of wishy-washy. President Trump isn't the first president to politicize the military, although he's been particularly egregious in it. President Obama cherry-picked military support uh, when it was publicly valuable to him. Every political campaign since Ronald Reagan's in 1980 has uh, released long lists of retired military endorsements. Uh, and this trend is actually really bad and should be checked. And nobody's going to check it if we don't check it by stopping putting the military on these enormously high pedestals and stopping using their narrow professional views as superior to the views of the elected political leaders or letting political leaders hide behind the military when they don't want to take responsibility for a judgment. We 
are very quickly trending towards a civil-military relationship that is like the politicization of the Supreme Court, which is the public only favors it and supports it when it agrees with their existing political views. And given that um, the American military wields lethal force on behalf of our broad society, that actually makes me really uncomfortable. And I raise the point because I think it should make a lot more people uncomfortable. And all of us who uh, despair and object to the president's reckless foreign policy behavior uh, ought to be careful about not enlisting the military in support of our political or foreign policy views, because that furthers the trend towards politicization of the military. And that's structurally and and civically a bad thing for us. Yeah, having said that, and having been accused a moment ago by Rosa of being wishy-washy, um, or joining her in wishy-washiness, I wasn't sure quite where that was. Uh, <laughs> where that was. Where that was. In said. the land of it's complicated. Yeah, in the land of it's complicated. I would say that everything that you've, I agree with everything that you've just said, and I also agree with Rosa's point. Um, which I think is... Wait a minute. You can't agree with everybody, David. Oh, but... <laughs> sure he can. Sure but he I've, can. I've lived in Washington for more than 25 years. But, um, <laughs> is it uh, watch me? <laughs> but, but, but I think the same kind of principles that, that Corey is speaking about underpin Rosa's point that in certain circumstances when people are given orders that are bad, or um, that are illegal, or, um, or uh, they see the direction of the government heading in, in, in what they feel uh, is contrary to the national interests or to the oath they took the Constitution. They have an obligation to speak out about it. You know, well, maybe, they, they, yeah, go on. Um, you know, maybe the, the solution to these seemingly, these, these views that are seemingly intention is to say that the focus should not be on what military personnel should do, but on how the rest of us should respond, you know, because I think, you know, clearly it's a matter of individual conscience for an individual service member or military leader. Uh, you know, what is the point where you feel that uh, a directive that you have been given, you know, is so egregiously uh, wrong? And, and, and it could be wrong in any number of ways. It could be, it could be, you know, clearly you have a legal duty if it's actually illegal. Um, but if you simply think it's it's profoundly destructive, dangerous, et cetera, you know, clearly it's a matter of individual conscience for that individual to decide, you know, can I go along with this? Do I do I resign? Do I, as a citizen and a human being, speak out about this? Um, and I would not condemn any service member at any level who spoke as a matter of conscience on anything, even if I profoundly disagreed with them, you know, even if their view was women shouldn't serve in the military or whatever. You know, I think if they're serious about it and they believe it strongly enough to take the risks associated with speaking out publicly, uh, you know, it's I, I'm not sure I would I would say, oh, they shouldn't do that. That being said, um, I think it's on the rest of us. You know, it's on it's on the rest of us as citizens. It's on civilian leaders. It's on the media, et cetera, to give appropriate weight or lack of weight to that. Because Corey is absolutely right. I, th I think a, a major problem, uh, and you know, th that is not new at all by any means, um, 
is that we have put our military on a pedestal. And so, you know, you interview private so-and-so and he says, oh, that whole war was a terrible mistake or, oh, we've got to go do this, you know, and we act as though this is sort of divine revelation, uh, much more so when it's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or a recently retired senior official. Um, and, and that's on us, you know, to, to, to put, put those military comments in proper perspective, which is to say, hey, these are citizens, they have particular areas of expertise, um, but they also have particular blind spots. And, and you know, so, so I, don't, I don't necessarily see the problem as being the individual choices made on the military side. I see the problem is how we as a society more broadly construe, use, and misuse those comments. So I, I you know, I, I would focus on, and, and this is something obviously Corey, Corey has done very powerfully in, in many ways throughout her career that, you know, the argument should be addressed to the rest of us saying, why on earth would you treat this as divine revelation as opposed to, you know, another view that may or may not be informed that you want to put in the mix along with a wide range of other perspectives. Well, I, th I think these are important issues that are not discussed enough, but they are on, on, on Deep State Radio because Corey's been talking about these issues for as long as we've been doing this um, and, <laughs> and, and, and longer than that. No, and it's an, important, it's an important discussion to have, particularly at a time like this. I mean, three days ago, the United States killed Soleimani. Three days later, the United States is moving its troops out of Iraq which is, or at least has said that it's going to, that, that seems to be a fairly seismic event. Iran has reopened questions about the, what Rosa likes to call the Jikpoa. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, that's, that's just the, its proper name, David. It's not what I like to call it. That's just what it is. Yeah, no, no, I, <laughs> thank you. Um, and, and, you know, we're starting to, you know, see aftershocks, and I th and I think it's arguable that um, it appears the United States government, which doesn't actually have a functioning national security process, didn't really think these things through. So here's my last question: It's 60 seconds to each one of you. You know, we're three days into this, and all this has happened. What do you expect? Just not not in the next five years, but in the next week or two are going to be further aftershocks of all this, starting with Corey? Uh, I think the possibility of full withdrawal of US forces from Iraq uh, will lead to the Iraqis moderating that request. Um, I think President Trump will want to pull all US troops out of Iraq, right? Like having having delivered the golpe against Soleimani, he will want to turn and walk away. Um, and that Congress will become involved to argue that we shouldn't uh, be so precipitous. Uh, I think the Iranians will restart nuclear reprocessing and possibly even withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty. And I'd love to hear Joe's views on the on the large-scale consequences of that happening. Joe? Sure, just on that last issue first, do you mean large-scale enrichment, not reprocessing? 
Uh, uh, yes, you, of course. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, they are ramping up. They're already storing more uranium gas um, than they than they used to have. They used to they were limited to 300 kilograms, for example. They have about 1,200 kilograms now. That starts to reduce the breakout time. Not an urgent threat. This is something that we'd have to worry about a year or so from now. But what do I think in 60 seconds? Um, I think we're on the road to war. I don't see the exit ramps there. I don't see anybody stepping in to provide any exit ramps. Um, I, I, I think the Iranians will retaliate in a way that tries to um, use their proxies so it's not a direct Iranian uh, attack. Uh, on U.S. assets or forces, but I think it'll be interpreted that way. I think the Trump administration is largely winning the frame of this debate, that that is that they've been successful in dehumanizing Iran, presenting it as a terrorist state, as Soleimani as a terrorist leader, and, and that this is just an act of self-defense, and if they hit us back in, in, in because of this, we're going to hit back harder, and that's just the way it is. Don't be naive. I think they're basically winning the frame here, even though the American public doesn't want us to go into war, but they don't want us for us to be weak. So therefore, I think we're going to get into a very large war with Iran. I think this is, could have catastrophic consequences. Um, I think it'll it'll roil the uh, the global economy. I think it'll tank the stock markets, except in Russia, where oil prices have already sent the stock markets soaring. Uh, and I think it'll probably cost Donald Trump the election. And I say all that, it's it's very difficult to make predictions, as Yogi Berra told us, especially about the future. And it's especially true about the Iranians. But that's the way I see the trends going. And I don't see any arrows pointing the other way. Well, Miss Thorny Crown of Entropy, top that. Okay. <laughs> no, I actually can't <laughs> top that. Joe is Joe is uh, more entropic than I am in his predictions. Um, uh, as I said, I, I'm I'm less concerned about uh, a sort of cataclysmic slide into sort of open, large-scale, conventional conflict. Um, but I, I do I do think, as I said earlier, um, I, I think we will we will see an uptick in uh, both directly Iranian-sponsored uh, and uh, attacks of various sorts, kinetic and non-kinetic. Um, I, I also think that we will probably see, I, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure what to call this. It's not exactly copycat, but I, I think that the U.S. strike and, and, and against Suleimani and, and Trump's language uh, at the time and subsequently will also just piss off a lot of people who are already fairly pissed off at the United States and may spark uh, anti-U.S. violence and anti-U.S. actions from others who are not uh, under the control of the Iranians. I, I think one of the things that the U.S. pretty consistently underestimates, not just this administration, um, but, but most U.S. administrations, is the you know, force of other people's nationalism and the degree to which uh, other people really dislike it when it looks like the U.S. is uh, appointing itself, um, you know, Zeus who can strike anybody anywhere, anytime with a thunderbolt because we feel like it. Um, and, and I think that the, you know, the mass demonstrations in Iran at the, the funeral, um, you know, uh, are they partly you know, cooked up by the Iranian authorities? Are some of those people there under compulsion? Maybe, totally possible. But on the other hand, you know, think about it. If, if, if someone 
if the Iranians assassinated the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, of the United States, uh, um, I think that Americans, including those who are profoundly critical of recent U.S. military actions, would be pretty united in feeling enraged um, uh, and feeling, you know, an instinct to retaliate and indeed you know, I think it, it would be viewed as an outrage, you know, that we would rightly view it as a, as a total outrage. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to quantify these things. It's hard to quantify the impact. Um, but this is part of the reason that both the Obama administration and the Bush administration decided not to strike against, against him directly, uh, because there's a pretty big difference between, I mean, I, you know, I think that there are profound problems with with targeted killings in general but there's a profound difference between a targeted killing of a non-state actor you know the head of ISIS uh, or an al-qaeda operative versus um, a, a a military official of a state um, you know it's Karen Greenberg has a terrific op-ed in today's New York Times talking about the legal distinctions between sort of targeted killing and assassination and and this one looks more like an assassination. And you know the law is always murky. You can argue it both ways, but but I think in terms of the the sort of global perceptions, um, this is going to trigger anger not just from the Iranians, um, and I think we're going to experience blowback not just from Iran directly as a result of this. Um, you know what happens domestically. Probably no change. I mean, consistent with the theme I've I've uh, been harping on for for many months now. Nothing ever seems to change anything in the in the land of Trump. Um, so I don't think I don't think this is going to have any particularly decisive impact either on the impeachment proceedings or on congressional authorization uh, to use force or on the election. Um, which is not to say that nothing could possibly ever change any of these dynamics. But I don't think that this will. Well, um, you know, it's interesting because a poll came out uh, even as we were recording and uh, it showed 43% of the American people support the attack on Soleimani, which is precisely what you would have predicted since 43% of the American people always support what Trump does, even if it's, you know, pulling the wings off a small insect, right? And so, uh, you know, you, you, your, your thesis there seems to be right. This is obviously an issue of, of, of much greater significance than we could have covered in this single uh, podcast because we haven't talked about the wag the dog elements of this in terms of the domestic politics. Uh, and we haven't talked about some of the other implications. If, in fact, the U.S. is pulling its troops out of Iraq, that opens the door for more Iranian influence or with the Iraqis turning to the Chinese, more other influence there. It also uh, is good news for ISIS, uh, and it's good news for Russia. If this results in more of a vacuum that Russia can fill in the region, they see it as a win. If it results in more instability that pushes up the price of oil, they see it as a win. Uh, and there are knock-on consequences above and beyond that. Clearly, what we'll try to do in the months and, and, year, and years ahead is we'll try to explore these things as we do on Deep State Radio every week. We'll be back on Thursday with another podcast that focuses more on the latest on the impeachment saga. And of course, that includes uh, today, uh, the day we're taping this, John Bolton saying that he would be happy 
to uh, testify to the Senate, um, an act of astonishing chutzpah, since he didn't seem to be willing to comply with a subpoena from the House, but Republicans he'll testify to. Um, and that has some consequences, and it could be in the next few days that the impeachment articles are handed over to the Senate. So we'll cover that. And then we'll be back here each and every uh, week as we are. And we've got some new things that we'll talk to you about, including a live event later this spring in Washington and maybe some in other places that we'll be doing in conjunction with some other podcasts. So there's a lot to talk about. Happy New Year. Welcome back uh, hmm. to you guys. Uh, welcome back to everybody out there in Deep State Radio uh, universe. And thank you to Corey. Welcome back to Washington, Corey. Um, thank you, David. And uh, and uh, Rosa and Joe, we're delighted that you are still in Washington. Um, and uh, and uh, part of part of the Deep State. Thank you both very much. Thank you, David. Uh, okay, thank you so all. Thank thank you all, and we'll be back with you again real soon.